Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause here for a moment before the preaching of your word and ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, we confess that we are completely dependent on you. Give us ears to hear so that this is not a waste of time. Father, would you fill me with your spirit this morning as I bring your word? Do a mighty work within us. According to your grace, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so right off the bat, I need to confess my deep sense of inadequacy to be teaching on prayer. Because I know that I don't often resort to prayer immediately as often as I should. And when I do, I feel out of practice. I agree with Eric Alexander, who says, I find prayer at one and the same time a great delight and a major challenge. I'm reluctant to pray and often find myself troubled by wandering thoughts when I do. And I don't think Eric and I are alone in this. Prayer often isn't our first resort. But it should be. The early church made prayer their first priority. In fact, all throughout the Bible, there are examples of God's people praying together. The Psalms, which are prayers, were written for the church to sing and to read. God's people recognized their utter dependence on him. They believed in the power of corporate prayer. That simply means that they just made it their regular practice to pray together. Prayer was not something that was optional for their gatherings. It was central. 
And then Jesus said things like, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And yet we don't often ask. Why would the Lord give us things that we don't even ask for? So it's my hope in prayer this morning that we are all encouraged to make prayer our first priority, to make it central when we gather together and to grow in the way that we pray. And so my main point this morning, what I, what I hope that you would leave here knowing is this, a church dependent on the Lord makes prayer central in all that it does. A church dependent on the Lord makes prayer central in all that it does. A church that prays expresses its dependence on God and a healthy church resorts to prayer first and often. And we will see this in our text this morning. But in order to understand what is going on in the verses that we have before us, why the church was led to pray, we must back up a little bit and get a little bit of context. So Luke, who is the author of Acts, writes in chapter 3 that the apostles, Peter and John, were heading to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. And as they get to the, the temple gate, there is this man who's lying on the ground because he's unable to walk and he's begging for money. And there's this moment where Peter and John and this lame man lock eyes and this lame man thinks they are going to put money in my hands. But Peter says this, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And this man who once had people carry him to this gate day after day is not only standing, but he's leaping and praising God. God heals this man. And as the people saw this man who once laid at the gate, leaping and praising God, they were filled with wonder and amazement. And this attracted more and more people to Peter and John. Luke writes that the people ran together to them. They flocked to see this man healed. And what does Peter do? Peter takes this opportunity to preach. Peter. Peter is a changed man. This is the disciple who denied Jesus three times. This was the disciple who was afraid of a little servant girl who denied that he was with Jesus. And now, before those in Jerusalem, Peter preaches a very powerful and convicting message, proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. He directs the people's attention from this healed man to Jesus Christ. He tells the people that it is God who healed this man. And keep in mind that they're in Jerusalem. This is the place, and these are the people who preferred Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. Peter says to the people, very bluntly, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses to this. 
This is bold. Peter urges them to repent of their sins and to seek mercy. And when you go home today, you should read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3. It's amazing. I didn't have enough time to, to read the whole sermon to you this morning. But so obviously this commotion in the city of Jerusalem captures the attention of the religious leaders. And at the beginning of chapter 4, we read that through Peter's preaching of the gospel, 5,000 people believed. 5,000 people. That's amazing. But the religious leaders don't think that this is amazing. In fact, Luke writes that they were annoyed by this. And so they had Peter and John thrown into prison. And no doubt there were those in the church watching all this happen, seeing Peter and John taken away, and they must have wondered what happened to them. In our text this morning in verse 23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Peter and John are released from prison and go to their friends. It means they went to the church and they told them what happened. But what happened? Well, they spent a night in prison and the next day they were brought before the high priestly family, known also as the Sanhedrin. This was the highest court in Jerusalem. This was the court that actually handed Jesus over to be crucified. And they asked Peter and John, by what power? Or by what name did you do this? And Peter's response is seen in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Whoa. Whoa, right? And this is Peter. Peter, who is afraid of a little servant girl. This is a changed Man, Christ commissioned the apostles to go into Jerusalem, to be witnesses, to go into Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, to be his witnesses. And here before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaims the gospel to those who handed Jesus over to be crucified. God has done a work in this man. And God is doing a work in his church. And the religious leaders, they don't even know what to do. And so they tell the apostles not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. They tried to stamp out the gospel right there. But Peter and John boldly speak up. We see that in verses 19 and 20. And say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God... You must judge, 
For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They say we must obey God. We will continue to speak and teach in the name of Jesus. And then the religious leaders continue to try to threaten the apostles, but eventually they have to just let them go. No doubt the church was gathered together wondering what was going on. Waiting to hear what happened. And so in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. They go to the church, whom here Luke calls their friends, and they let them know what happened. And so when the church heard the report, they did what many of us would not do. They prayed. When they heard that the chief priests had threatened the apostles and of the courage and boldness given to them by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church prayed. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Wow, what a prayer. It's helpful for us to study the prayers of the early church. This prayer is a helpful example for how we should pray as the church because their prayer is completely God-centered. It's, it's so God-centered that even what they ask God to do is shaped around his mission and not even their own safety. In this specific prayer, we will see that the church prayed together. We'll see that their view of God influenced their prayer. We'll see that the scripture influenced their prayer. And then we will see what they prayed for. So they lifted their voices together. They were unified in this prayer to God. This is how Jesus taught the disciples to pray in, in the Lord's Prayer. Right? He says, Pray, our Father, our Father. One commentator says this, prayer was never meant to be merely a personal exercise with personal benefits, but a discipline that reminds us how we were personally responsible for others. This means that every time we pray, we should actually reject an individualistic mindset. We are not just individuals in relationship with God, but we are a part of a community of people who have the same access to God. They lifted their voices together. And notice the, the first words of their prayer are words of adoration for God, confessing and reminding themselves of who God is. And they address the sovereignty of God. He is the sovereign Lord. The Greek word for Lord used here in this verse is different from what we see used often in the New Testament. It refers to God being the absolute ruler. The ruler of unchallengeable power. The ruler of unchallengeable power. The primary theme of this prayer is God's sovereignty and his power. And so the church addresses God in a way that is relevant 
to their need at the moment. The rulers, right, the rulers have tried to exert their authority over the church by saying, do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And so what does the church do in their prayer? They acknowledge that the Lord is the ruler over all things, even the chief priests and the authorities in Jerusalem. He has total control. Nothing happens without his knowledge, and he can use all things for his purposes. He is the sovereign Lord. We must keep in mind that we don't pray because God needs help running the universe. We don't pray to change God's mind. We pray because God has ordained means to accomplish his ends. He has arranged things so that he will give more grace to those who ask for it. In prayer, we're not instructing God as much as we are instructing ourselves. And we see this as the early church prays for their situation. They also address him as the creator, the one who created the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything that is within them. He is the sovereign Lord and also the creator of everything. In Jeremiah chapter 33, it says, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Notice what they're doing. They're addressing God by his attributes. They're addressing God for who he is and what he is like how do we typically begin our prayers? We typically begin with our requests. But the early church didn't do this. They began with exalting God for who he is. They reminded themselves of an attribute of God that was relevant to the situation that they were in. And then they prayed along those lines. This type of praying should influence our corporate prayers and individual prayers, to look at our situation and remind ourselves of who God is, even in light of our circumstances. This would transform our prayers. But unfortunately, too often we doubt God's power and promises. We trust in ourselves and don't often resort to prayer. When it should be our first resort, it's often our last or just plain out neglected. What we need when we pray is less of awareness of ourselves and more of an awareness of God. When I get distracted and discouraged in prayer, I have to remind myself of this simple fact that someone is there. Someone is listening, and not just anyone. My Father in heaven, my sovereign Lord, the creator of the universe. To know that we are praying to the one who is in complete control will give us so much comfort and confidence no matter what we're facing. So not only did 
the church's prayer contained an address to God for who he is, but the church also quoted scripture in their prayer. They prayed using the Bible. Not only is their prayer centered on the person of God, but also grounded in the word of God. Do you see that in verses 25 through 26? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The church here is praying a section of Psalm 2. They only quote two verses, but most likely they have the whole psalm in mind. God is the absolute ruler. He is the God over all creation, but he is also the God who has spoken. And the early church used scripture to help their prayer life. The scripture guided their prayers Instead of feeling the need to spontaneously come up with something to say, they prayed in response to God's word. This is a great practice for us to have. In Psalm 2, it speaks about how the nations plot against the Messiah. The church was experiencing this firsthand. They had seen how the rulers crucified Jesus, and now they were entering into that suffering being brought into prison, being told not to teach and speak in the name of Jesus. They had threats coming at them. But they also knew the end of Psalm 2. God ultimately overcomes. Jesus has defeated death through his resurrection. Jesus is the anointed one in Psalm 2. And so the church could take courage knowing that even in the suffering that they would face, it was under the control of God. God has already spoken in a way that was relevant to their situation. How many, how many times have we desired to, for God to speak to us, and yet because we've neglected to read his word, we don't get an answer. In this book, you will find answers. You will find words to use in prayer that are relevant to your situation. The church prayed using God's word. And then the theme of sovereignty continues in verses 27 and 28. Take a look. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God not only knows the future, but he has ordained everything that has happened in our world's history. Jesus' trial and death on the cross didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by chance. From the beginning, God had planned to send his son to die on the cross to redeem his people. That's what the church is confessing in their prayer here. 
And if you're here and you're wondering, what's this gospel? Why do you guys celebrate the death of Jesus? Well, in the beginning, God created. We read that at the beginning of this prayer, right? God is the creator of the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that's in them. And that includes you and me. God created man, but man sinned. Each and every one of us has turned away from God and towards sin. And the punishment for sin is death. But the good news of the gospel is this, that Christ died for the sins of those who would believe in him. That's why we rejoice in the death of Jesus. Salvation from sin, reconciliation with God, and life everlasting, entrance into the kingdom of God comes through repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you have not believed in Jesus, I pray that God would reveal to you that you are a sinner. It's a hard, hard word, but it's true. You are a sinner in need of salvation. Trust in Jesus. Believe in him. Here in this passage, we see that this gospel, this death of Jesus was planned. It was predestined to take place because God the Father planned it. There were people gathered in the city of Jerusalem against Jesus. They planned evil things and yet they played right into the plan of God. That's what the church is confessing in this prayer. We have both God's sovereign, predetermined plan and human responsibility acting out together in unison. They did it, but also God did it. What a comfort to know that even during the difficulties and dangers and threats and evil plans of man, that God is working out his plan. In their prayer, the church acknowledges this, that he is the sovereign Lord who is in complete control. What a comfort in the midst of the threats from these religious leaders. And then also consider Peter and John, who could have taken their arrest as a personal attack on themselves. They could have come to the church and said, oh, they, they arrested us. Poor us. But in light of what the church prays in verse 27, they saw their arrest as an attack on Jesus. Jesus himself taught that the world would persecute and hate those who were his. Back when the apostle Paul, when his name was Saul, and Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, what does he say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Nope. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? An attack on God's people is really an attack on Jesus. And in this prayer and how the church interpreted the fulfillment of Psalm 2 that God ultimately overcomes, we are reminded of God's victory and protection over his people. The central source of the courage of the early church was that if God could overrule the worst that man had done, mainly Jesus Christ's death, he could use anything that happened to them. 
he is able to bring good out of evil. The church prayed along these lines. And so as they pray, addressing God as the ruler over everything, the creator of all that exists, the one who speaks, the one whose plan plays out even in the midst of evil, they finally get to their prayer request. (laughs) Take a look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. They asked God to take note of the threats that they received. And in this, we see them trusting God to take care of their enemies. Very quickly, they're just saying, God, you can handle this. Here's our our request. What does the church ask of God? They ask that he would give them boldness. Boldness to speak his word. They didn't pray, God, don't let them arrest us again. They didn't pray, don't let them come after us. They didn't even pray, God, go after them. They pray for boldness for the mission that was given to them. Wow. This isn't a prayer for relief, but a prayer for courage. The church today needs to pray prayers for courage. Amen? Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And here we see the church's weakness. They recognize their weakness. That's why they prayed for boldness. And while it's not wrong to pray against suffering and persecution, we should never prioritize our safety above the mission of spreading the gospel. And this is definitely a huge lie that the church in North America buys into all the time. I buy into this all the time. But we need to be reminded that the mission matters more than our safety. I know that's a hard pill to swallow. But the Christian life isn't one of ease. It's not one of comfort and safety. If we are truly following Jesus, we will face opposition. And it will come in many different forms, but we will be opposed. And that's why it's important for the church to pray. The early church was no different than us in their level of fear, in their concern of safety. They were regular human beings like us that had families. But they prayed quickly. And they prayed often. And they prayed prayers like this that reminded them of who their God is. Because they knew who they were. And they desperately asked him for help. Their dependence was not in themselves, but the God that they prayed to. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. And they also pray for the Lord to stretch out his hand miraculously to heal, for signs and wonders to be performed in the name of Jesus. Remember the healing of the lame man what led to that opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel. 
To be clear, God, not man, works miracles. God works miracles. And miracles and wonders are signs confirming the preaching of the good news. They occur in the name of Jesus Christ and aid in proclaiming his name. These miracles, they drew crowds of people. Right? We read that 5,000 people believed because 5,000 people flocked to Peter and John because they saw a lame man healed. But the point here is not the healing. The point here is the proclaiming of the gospel, the salvation of people, the salvation of 5,000 people. So the church prayed for God to work miracles in order for more opportunities to preach the word with boldness. They pray for God to take note of the threats because they were real and they were scared. To give them opportunities through healing and miracles in Jesus' name, but most importantly, they asked for boldness to proclaim the word of God. And God responds to their prayer, right? Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Imagine the scene when they had finished praying this incredible prayer. The room that they're in starts to shake. Maybe it was an earthquake. But do not miss the significance of this detail. Think about other events in Scripture where the ground shakes. In Isaiah 6, the ground shook when Isaiah encountered God in his throne room. In Matthew 27, the ground shakes during Jesus' death. These ground-shaking moments symbolize the presence of God. God comes down and is present in power He's the one who controls the physical universe like they had prayed, and God shows up in a way that is felt. But not every prayer receives an immediate answer, but in this case, God strengthens the faith of the believers by showing them that he has heard their prayer. And not only is God's presence felt, but all, not just the apostles, but all the believers in this room, the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind, this is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who becomes a Christian receives the Holy Spirit immediately. But there are times when the Spirit is more active in us. And that's the case here. The Spirit filled the believers in the room and was more active in their lives. And this resulted in what they had prayed for. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They left that room after they had prayed, filled with the Spirit, and continued to preach the gospel in boldness. This account is just one example, one incredible example, but only one example of the regular prayer life of the early church. All throughout the book of Acts, they prayed when they met. Prayer was essential to all that they did. In Acts 1.14, they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts 6, they prayed before choosing leaders, and great growth resulted. 
In Acts 12, they prayed for the release of Peter from prison. Another amazing story. You guys should read that. Acts 12. Acts 13, they prayed before setting aside the first missions and church planting team, Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 14, they prayed before setting aside new believers and new churches as leaders. Prayer was their first priority, and they prayed often. Charles Spurgeon once said, how could we expect a blessing if we don't ask for it? Prayer is vital to the health of the church. We want God to be glorified. We desire for people to come to Christ. But why don't we constantly pray for these things? We can focus on great teaching. We can focus on reaching out and evangelizing and doing great works of mercy. But the church that doesn't spend time in corporate prayer won't experience the power and bear the fruit that it should. Faith of the early church came from the reality that they served a God that was in complete control. And their, their prayers expressed just that. So what are some takeaways that we see in Acts 4? Well, number one, prayer should be our first resort. Whether there's good news or bad news, there's both of that in this instance. As a church, we should always go to God in prayer first. Prayer should be something we do every time we gather. Not because it's something that we should do, because it's something that we get to do. We often forget that. Because of Christ, we have access to God. We can go to him with every need that we have, knowing that he will listen. So prayer should be our first resort. We should also pray the Bible. There's nothing wrong with praying prayers in our own words, but nothing is better than praying using the words that God has given us. And as we pray to God corporately, it would be useful to have God's word as a guide and help. Let our prayers be filled with the attributes of God, who he is. Let our prayers be filled with the words that he's given us in the Bible. We should pray the Bible. We should also pray for the mission. The church here in the book of Acts prayed for boldness to speak God's word, to present Christ to a lost world without fear. And we have the same mission. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. To make disciples of Jesus Christ. Of course, we should be praying to our Heavenly Father for our needs. There's nothing wrong with praying, praying for our needs, and we should. But the problem is, is that we rarely pray for the mission. Let's pray for the lost to be saved in this city. Let's pray that God gives us a boldness to proclaim his word. We should pray for the mission. Don't get scared. We should also pray for miracles. Most of us understand that healing and the miracles that were performed in the book of Acts were unique to that apostolic era. The foundation of the church was being laid. Miracles are not normative, but we shouldn't be narrow-minded in thinking that miracles can never happen. 
The God who worked the miracles in the midst of the apostles is the same God in which we pray to. Is it okay for us to pray for God to heal a loved one? Of course it is. But when we pray, we should pray for God's will in that healing to demonstrate his power to those around that person. The miracles that God performs have the intention to open hearts and save people. And salvation is the greatest miracle. We should pray that God would miraculously open doors for evangelism and discipleship and for God to give us a platform to preach his word with boldness. And lastly, as we pray, we should expect God to meet us. He doesn't always shake the building. That would be awesome, though, right? Maybe not so with some of you. <laughs> he doesn't answer, or he doesn't always answer immediately. But we should expect God to meet us and to equip us through his Holy Spirit. May we pray like this. May we be a church that prays like the church we read in Acts. In all glory, go to Jesus' name. A church dependent on the Lord makes prayer central in all that it does. Before I pray, I just want to address anyone in this room who's been sitting here listening to me talk about forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And you, you may not have the assurance of forgiveness. You may have not surrendered your life to Jesus. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because yesterday I was at two memorial services. One for an 83-year-old man and the other for a five-year-old girl. We're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. So are you willing to gamble another day, knowing that the Bible says that those outside of Christ will spend an eternity in hell? And all that is required of you is that you would repent of your sins. That means to turn away from the sinful things that you do and to turn towards God, to believe in Jesus, to believe that he died for your sins. I'm going to pray for all of us, but also for those who do not know Jesus, that you would have the boldness today to confess Jesus for the first time.